We are busy with our summer mix series, a series in which we are taking, it's like a summer mix CD, right? Or a summer mix tape where we put all of our favorite bands and favorite songs on that. And then when we go on our long journey, we listen to all of these different musicians, different songs, but they're all our favorites and we enjoy that. So this is what we're doing this Sunday. The summer is we got all of our favorite speakers with some of their favorite topics and we said, come and bring your best. And today it's my honor and privilege to introduce to you someone that a lot of you might know, um, Bill Allen. He used, they used to be members of Grace Church for 30 years. They've done everything from planting churches in South America to doing leadership training and to today being the president of the AGC, the group that our church is part of. And where is Bill? Here he is. Bill, thank you for being here today. And we trust that God will speak through you. We're just thankful that you and Michelle can be with us today again. Excellent. Good morning, everyone. Always good to be back at Grace in the summertime. I was thinking back, this is 32 years in vocational ministry for me this year, and I just look at God's grace over many years. And back in 1995, when Michelle and I were serving as missionaries, the mission agency we served with merged with another mission agency. And that was a good thing as far as mergers go. We went from about 200 missionaries to 400, so we doubled in size. A mission agency that had started in the late 1800s because of the vision of an Irish evangelist. H. Grattan Guinness, you'll recognize the, the last name, same family tree as the brewery. And the joke always was it was the brewer side that funded the mission side. And I'm not sure if that was true, but it was a good merger for two agencies that saw the benefit of coming together to do ministry together. And we did a number of events to sort of highlight this merger, we framed it around the idea of a wedding, two families coming together, joining, moving forward. And one of the things we decided to do was they tasked one of the former directors to write a history of both missions, a book, to bring together the two sides. And I was very interested because I like history, I like mission history, and I wanted to learn more about this other group that was now part of our agency. One of the things they said was that Every current missionary was going to be mentioned in this book. I thought, oh, that's kind of exciting. I'm going to be mentioned in a book. And I wondered, um, what would they say about me? Would they, would they focus on the time that Michelle and I served in a, in a, a very remote Amazon village? Uh, would they highlight maybe the uh, leadership development ministry we were involved with in Lima at the time? Perhaps they talk about my appendix story. I had my appendix out in an Amazon village. It's quite the story if you haven't heard it. Maybe you've heard it several times. I like to tell it. So finally, in 1999, four years in the making, this book came out. And the book arrived. Drumbeats that changed the world. That was the title. And it was based on a Congolese proverb because our mission initially began in what was then the Belgian Congo. Drumbeats that changed the world. The man who beats the drum doesn't know how far the sound will travel. And it was a metaphor, thinking back to those early missionaries that took the gospel, that preached the word, and they had no idea how far that word would go over many years. And so finally the book arrived. And it was a big, thick book. It's two sides, right? Bringing us all together. Had a lot of pictures. Now, I didn't start reading the book. I went to the index. 
and I looked for my name. Because remember, every current serving missionary was going to be named in this book. And there it was. Now, Alan, it wasn't hard to find. It was on the first page of the index. And there it was. Alan, comma, Bill. Page 523. So I went to page 523. And I read page 523. And there was no Alan, comma, Bill. I thought, in my excitement, I probably read it too fast. I went through and read it again. Several times. Still, no Alan, comma, Bill. I thought, well, it's a typo. They've made a mistake. Now, where am I going to find myself in this big, thick book? I know, I'll go to the section on Latin America. That's probably where I am. And I read that section several times. And I still found no Alan, comma, Bill. You know what? I probably got my own section. Maybe my own chapter. Maybe that's why I can't find my name. So I finally decided to read the book. And it was a good book. I really enjoyed it because, again, I like history. I like mission history. And I found my name. It was a footnote. <laughs> in the wrong section, on the wrong page. And this is what it said. The Bill Allen family transitioned to Lima. <laughs> That's it? A footnote on the wrong page, in the wrong section? I'm a footnote? My swelled head came back to uh, its proper size. And I had to rethink about what it meant to have your name written in a book. It was a bit deflating. You know, I've often said that one of the greatest tactics our spiritual enemy has is to rob us of our joy and leave us feeling defeated, deflated, depressed, and de-energized in serving Christ. Kind of like expecting a glowing testimony about yourself in a book and finding out you're a footnote on the wrong page in the wrong section. But the truth is, God never called us to get our names in light, to be famous or held up to the applause of others. He called us to be faithful and to have joy in the things that matter. See, if I had placed my joy in getting my name in a book, I was very quickly disappointed. But he calls us to something more. Jesus calls us to something better. One of my favorite books, and we're going to be looking at that book, is the Paul's letter to the Philippians. And I, I've spoken here on some of these chapters. Chapter 1, Paul begins with this foundation of joy. It's the book of joy because 16 times in this letter, he uses that term joy or rejoice. And the foundation of joy in chapter 1 begins with a right relationship with God, is practiced in a right relationship with others, and is sustained by the ongoing work of Christ in each of us. It's not the circumstances in which you find yourself. That foundation is not built on who I am, what I do, or what I have. It's built on my relationship with Jesus. And he goes on in chapter 2 and he gives us this expression of joy. That great chapter on Jesus emptying himself for a time to take on the form of a man. To humble himself to death on the cross for each of us. And we see that theme of unity and humility. And Paul writes... In chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. There's the key to joy. It's unity. It's coming together with one another. In chapter 3, he gives us a warning of the thieves of joy. 
that start with a faulty foundation, my pride, my religion, my good works. They place a wrong emphasis, a false comparison with others, what I've accomplished. And they trust in a flawed outcome, that it's about performance, it's what I do, it's who I am that matters. And so this morning I want to look at Philippians chapter 4, and we want to look at the hope of joy that he gives us in this letter as he ends this short letter to the church at Philippi. And for the first time in chapter 4, in this letter, Paul specifically mentions two individuals by name in the church that are involved in some form of interpersonal conflict. Paul is addressing in this letter the issue of disunity and rivalry among the believers. Many Bible scholars think that the reason Paul wrote about this was to address the disunity, the rivalry that was going on among believers in the church at Philippi. And he chose to focus on joy and put a better perspective on where we need to focus our time and our energies. If you have a Bible or a phone or just want to watch the screen, I'm going to read Philippians chapter 4 and verses 4 through 9. That's a passage we're going to be looking at this morning. And he writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, because the word is plural, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. I pray that you would open our hearts to hear your words, that they may transform our lives, and that we may leave this place filled with your joy that comes from knowing you and being in relationship with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9, Paul tells us that the hope of joy is found in four specific things that help answer that question. So that in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, whether it's external challenges or internal problems and conflicts within the church, these four things together give us a new focus and help us see the hope of joy that we have in Jesus. And he begins these verses with an imperative verb, a command. Now you'll see that Paul loves command verbs, imperatives. And he repeats it twice here as a qualifier that he will give as to why the imperative or the command is important. He doesn't want his readers, and you and I today, to miss that point. He talks about the imminent return of Christ, and he says this. Look at chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 again. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. These are commands. These are verb commands, imperatives. They're not suggestions. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Rejoice in the Lord in all things. Everywhere and under every circumstance, have this attitude of rejoicing or joy in the Lord, not in your circumstances, in the Lord, in that personal relationship that we have with Jesus. Because our joy isn't dependent upon our circumstances. It's not dependent upon what we have or, or what we want to have. 
If that were true, our life would be like a yo-yo, up and down, up and down, never having that consistent balance that he wants us to have. He says, by this, everyone will see your reasonableness. The NIV reads, let your gentleness be known to all. Uh, a simple English translation, the Amplified Bible, gives even a more descriptive phrase. Let your gentle spirit, your graciousness, unselfishness, mercy, tolerance, and patience be known to all people. When our joy is focused on Christ, this is the attitude we have, and it will be evident in our lives. Others around will see it. The hope that we have and the joy that we have is not found in this life or in this circumstance. It's in the imminent return of Christ. The Lord is at hand. That's our hope. That's our focus. That's our future. And for many today, they've lost that hope. The imminent return of Christ, they lost their true joy because they focused on the here and now, on their present circumstance. So what does the imminent return of Christ mean and why is it important to this aspect of having joy in our life? It's that belief that Jesus will, could return at any moment. His second coming preceded by a rapture of the church. And therefore, that's the hope we look for. Not this life. This is kind of the introduction, the preface to what life eternal will be like with him. But many would say, but we're still here. We're still waiting. 2,000 years plus have gone by. And the apostle Peter gives us a much overlooked truth as it relates to this idea of the imminent return of Christ. Because in Jesus' day, they looked for that hope. When Jesus died, was resurrected, and ascended to glory, they looked for that return. And they waited. And we wait today. But we have that hope. So 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise of His return, as some count slowness, but He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's why we're still waiting it's so that many more would come to know Jesus personally. For us, that's our hope. It's something we long for. The Lord is at hand. It's something that leads us and guides us as we live our life. For us, it means eternal glory with Him. The end of pain and suffering. The effects and the power of sin. That's why Paul wrote in Titus chapter 2, verse 13 waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The imminent return of Christ is that first aspect of the hope of joy that we have. It's not in who I am. It's not in what I've accomplished. It's not even what we do together. It's that our future is not here. Our future is with Christ, and He will return one day. If we went back to Philippians chapter 3, he says in verses 20 and 21, But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. That's where this aspect of joy begins. It's in the hope that we have. Jesus is coming, and my future is with Him. Now that doesn't mean we just abdicate everything we're doing right now. That means we live with that hope and we live through whatever circumstance he allows in our life. And from the imminent return of Christ, Paul moves to the second aspect of the hope of joy, the peace of God that we see in verses 6 and 7. Look at those verses again. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now we often use these verses in relation to prayer, but the context of Philippians speaks to the internal struggles and conflict interpersonally that they were experiencing as a church body that had robbed their joy. And so Paul begins now not with a command or imperative verb, but with a negative command. Do not be anxious about anything. And that word anxious literally means to experience worry, unease, nervousness, typically about some imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. To be anxious is to be burdened with a lack of peace. It's to be pressed down, emotionally fearful. To be anxious are those sleepless nights when your mind races and goes from event to event and how am I going to do this? How am I going to pay that bill? What's the outcome of this going to be? And your sleep is robbed. Your rest is robbed. And for believers, we become anxious when we take our eyes off Jesus and we focus on other things. Think of the disciples in the boat in a storm and Jesus is asleep. And they're fearful. Think of Peter walking on the water. As long as his eyes are focused on Jesus, he's okay. He takes his eyes off Jesus and he focuses on the storm and what happens? He begins to sink. Paul said, don't do it. Don't think this way. The Lord is at hand. That's our hope. That's our joy. And his peace will be with us in all circumstances. But along with this negative imperative command, he gives us a practical application. Go to God with your, whatever is disrupting your life. Whatever it is that is going on, go to God. One of the great gifts that we have is the ability to come before our Heavenly Father and bring to Him that which burdens our heart. And so Paul gives us some specific activities to do this. He says, by prayer, we have the ability to come into the presence of the Holy of Holies before God, our Creator, and bring to Him that which is burdening our hearts by prayer and supplication to come earnestly and humbly into his presence with thanksgiving because again we remember that he's in control of all things he knows what we have to ask before we even speak it let your requests be made known to god ask him bring your concerns bring your your fears and the challenges that you're facing and the outcome of that is the peace of God. Look at verse 7. And the peace of God, when we do that, when we practice those four steps, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peace is the absence of anxiety. The freedom from anxiousness and worry. This is not the peace that the world gives. But this is the peace that comes from God and it surpasses or is better than all human understanding. Think of Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16, in prison, beaten, no certain future, singing hymns and joyfully praising God at midnight in a prison. Why? Why could they do that? Because their circumstance didn't take away their position in Christ. It didn't rob them of the joy of being in Christ. Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. 
through Christ Jesus. He wrote to the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and thankful. The peace of God is not found in the absence of problems in our life. Being a Christian, being in Christ, being joyful will not remove the problems that you will face in this life. That's part of just being human. But we can have joy in spite of the circumstances and the issues and the challenges because we can have the peace of God in all things. We can be totally at peace in the midst of the storm. Do you want to have joy? Find the peace of God that goes beyond human understanding, that doesn't have an answer. I can't answer how am I going to come out of this challenge. I can't answer how I'm going to solve this problem. But I can have peace and joy in Christ because my life isn't purposed in those circumstances. Paul moves on in verse 8, and he gives us this third aspect of the hope of joy, and it's the focus on better things. He now moves from theory to practice. We can understand intellectually with our minds and agree in our minds that Jesus is coming back. I believe it. I read it. I understand it. But does it impact the way I live my life today? We understand that we shouldn't be anxious because Paul said, remember, it's a, a negative imperative. Do not be anxious about anything. We should go to prayer. I understand that process of going to prayer with supplication and thanksgiving. But do I actually do it? Do we talk about having peace in a way that demonstrates that we have peace in our life? It's often said that our stated beliefs need to match our practice beliefs. Or we need to change what we believe. Our actions will always demonstrate our belief. Look at verse 8 again. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure... Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Here's where the rubber meets the road. There's no fooling around. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, because that word again is plural. In all of what I've just said, I'm pointing now to these practical steps to live out this hope of joy that you have in your life. Pastor and author F.F. Bruce has said this about this verse. If the mind is dyed the color of its waking thoughts, then what one thinks about life gives character to that life. As good food is necessary for bodily health, so good thoughts are necessary for mental and spiritual health. Let me rephrase that in today's language. Garbage in, garbage out. This verse encourages us. And Paul's going to use another imperative command verb at the end, so this is important. And he gives us a list of six attributes, six areas to focus on throughout life, knowing that out of this flows our action or our conduct, our relationship with others, both inside and outside the church. He says, whatever is true, in a world of untruth and fake truth and fake news, in a world where many self-determine what truth is, he says, focus your mind on true things. Avoid all false truths that we encounter today. How do you do that? You focus on the Word. The Word becomes the filter or the grid through which everything passes. If anything is honorable, some translations use the word noble, rise above the mundane and the frivolous. That which is worthy of honor, focus on those things. 
Whatever is just, the idea here is righteous thoughts in a right relationship with God and with man. Whatever is pure in a moral sense related to sexuality. And we see where our world has gone in that area. Whatever is lovely, it's interesting, this word is only found here in the New Testament. And it refers to that which is pleasing, that which gives pleasure to all and distaste to none. And whatever is commendable or admirable, those things to pursue after. And again, at the end of verse 8, he uses this little conditional word, if, alongside the imperative command. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And that word think is not some casual thought. It's to be intentional. It's to closely examine these things. It's to focus intense attention on them. Concentrate on them. The hope of joy is found when we focus on better things. Because really, there's a lot that can drag your attention away from better things. There's a lot of things that can fill your mind and take your time. If we allow it. It then robs our joy, and we live out in action those thoughts. In verse 9, Paul gives us one final aspect of this hope of joy, and that's the practice of the hope of joy. This is not just an intellectual or theoretical lesson that he's given. These are practical instructions with the intent that we take this, put it into our lives, and live it out daily. The hope of joy is not found in some intellectual, feel-good, warm and fuzzy environment. It's lived out in our lives. It's proven in the circumstances in which we find ourselves in. He says in verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul's not looking for carbon copies of himself here, but those characteristics or those qualities of spiritual maturity that are available to each of us. He wrote to a young pastor in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, and he said, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What did Timothy hear from Paul that was validated in the presence of many witnesses? It was the practice of his faith. In times of need, in persecution, in suffering, in beatings, and imprisonment, in times of plenty, in times of need and hurt, in times of peril and uncertainty and shipwreck, in all of this and more, Paul lived his faith with joy, and so can you and I. Your circumstance today does not dictate the joy that you have in your life. He says, practice these things. And there it is again. One final command, one final imperative verb. No lollyganging, no flip-flopping, no hesitation. Forward we go, focused on the Lord, his imminent return, and the joy that we can have because of who we are in Christ, lived out daily in good times and in difficulty. So what does it mean for us when he says the God of peace will be with you? It's a promise that we have. That wherever you find yourself today, whatever's going on in your life, you can have this same joy. There it is. The presence of God in all that we go through. The good, the bad, and the ugly. No promise of utopia here and now. No promise of health, wealth, and freedom from any worry. But the promise of his presence. The presence of God. The God of peace will be with us. He began this chapter with a reference to an ongoing 
conflict, interpersonal conflict between two ladies in the church. And he writes these verses in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. I entreat Yodi and I entreat Sintache to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. These were not some casual attenders, the Christmas and Easter crowd, if you will. These were two women who were co-laborers with Paul in the ministry, whose names are in the book of life. Yet they had some form of interpersonal conflict that was robbing their joy and shifted their focus from Christ to lesser things. And so Paul calls them to unity. He calls them to resolution. He calls them to lay aside their rights in order to maintain unity. And he gives us this focus, a better focus, the imminent return of Christ. That's our hope. That's what we're longing for, that Christ will return and we will spend eternity in his presence. The peace of God. In the midst of difficulty and trouble, we can have peace. We do that by having a focus on better things. And then we practice that hope of joy, the unity that we can have with one another. We may not always agree. We're not always going to agree. But as family, we can never be separated. We cannot allow conflict to divide us as a community, as part of the body of Christ. So our joy is based on Him, not our circumstance. Our circumstances will change, and change will fail us. But Jesus is the constant. The hope that we have of joy in this life is only Jesus. It's not our circumstance. It's not what we have. It's not who we are or what we've done or what we're doing. It's the relationship we have with him, that we are his, and that he is present with us today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the joy that you give us, not in circumstance, not in things, but in relationship with you. And that joy transcends all of the difficulty that we find in this life, Lord. All the pain, the suffering. We thank you, Lord, that in the midst of all of that, we can still have joy because of who you are. And we look with anticipation, Lord, to your return. To that day when we will spend eternity with you, with one another as the body of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.